0: Have you ever wondered why your favorite taco is costing you an arm and a leg these days? Or is your dream couch still in backorder status for months now? Join us as we go behind the scenes of the global supply chain. Let us discuss and understand its complexity and learn from the industry leaders, professionals, and subject matter experts. Expect in-depth analysis and genuine conversations about the major issues affecting the supply chain today. Welcome to Supply Chain Demystified. Your host is none other than the distinguished supply chain expert, Dr. Nick Valles. Professor Vias is the academic director of USC Marshall Global Supply Chain Management and founding executive director of USC Marshall Randall R. Kendrick Global Supply Chain Institute.
1: Welcome to Supply Chain Demystified. I'm your host, Professor Nick Vias, and Today we have a very interesting topic because every time we think about supply chain, we often think about the physical flow. Last several decades now, we've been talking about the digital flow, regulatory flow, but often we don't understand what truly drives the supply chain beyond those three things that I just mentioned. Well, there's a role of finance, dollars. At the end of the day, dollar moves everything it moves the data, the regulatory compliance, as well as the physical goods movement. So today, I'm very pleased to talk about the finance in post-COVID supply chain. And I have a wonderful guest, uh, uh, Melissa Cochrane. She's the vice president of Niagara Bottles. Welcome.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
1: So for audience, what is Niagara bottling?
2: So Niagara Bottling is a U.S.-based manufacturing company uh, very focused on technology and automation, but we make uh, all things in plastic. Plastic beverages, primarily water, is our legacy, but um, lots of other bottled products, including uh, no soda, but things in uh, the—think of Gatorade or things of the like.
1: So you're primarily the supplier that moves the liquid drinks, from factory to the consumer?
2: Absolutely, yeah, we do.
1: Okay, and just so that all of our audience kind of have the understanding, give me a scale and the size and your manufacturing capacity. I mean, what's the breadth of this operation?
2: Sure. In the U.S., um, Niagara has, we'll be opening up our 50th plant in the U.S. So across the nation. Five zero. Five zero. Coast to coast, uh, 50 plants. And we have about 180 manufacturing lines in all those plants across the U.S. And, uh, we'll ship about, uh, a million and a half to two million truckloads of product, um, to customer DCs and to retail outlets this year.
1: Wow. Fant- that is a pretty gigantic operation, to say that. Yes. least. And I know we're going to talk about the finance and the role of finance, but just to understand, because we're talking about the plastic bottles, I know we have a huge, yesterday I did a podcast about the ESG and environment being a big piece of the E, starting with the environment. The plastic has been... Now known to create a lot of issues with that. How is that actually plays into what you guys are? Your prime commodity happens to be the plastic.
2: Yeah. So, Niagara has been very um, cutting edge and very innovative. I started at Niagara about 16 years ago. And when I started, the average um, small half liter bottle that most consumers drink weighed about 14 grams. Today, our lightest bottles are actually under seven. And so, Niagara has driven that innovation to reduce plastic as well as other packaging um, to kind of focus on carbon footprint and sustainability initiatives. And so, It's a choice consumers make, and we make a product that our customers and the consumers want. And so balancing something that actually is the most recyclable commodity um, and just getting education out there around plastic.
1: So, you know, USC last year, President Fault actually eliminated the use of plastics on the campus. And I'm sure this trend is when I was in Europe, happens to be the big trend. And I'm sure you guys are looking at the micro-macro trends on this thing. Does that concern you in terms of pivoting to other product, or do you do other products as well outside of the plastic?
2: We currently don't do anything outside of plastic. Everything we do is in plastic. And so, you know, pre-COVID, anti-plastic was pretty big, and then COVID kind of disrupted the world for a while. But, you know, anti-plastic is kind of back again. And even in our backyard, which is, we're a SoCal-based company, and in our backyard, the city of LA has initiatives, the airports are anti-plastic um, so we're definitely aware of it, and it's something you know the organization tries to get in front of from an education perspective and educate consumers and regulatory bodies that hey, plastic isn't bad if it's recycled just as aluminum. And so, trying to just gain some education and focus there. But Niagara's not ignorant to understand and look about other options as well. You know, we're always aware of what's happening. And
1: so, but you do bring up a very good point because often this narratives gets lost. So there is a percentage, and in some cases it's a large percentage, because I've seen some bottles that's say completely made from recycled material. So there is a component that you actually recycle. If it's yes. collected properly, disposed properly, and there's a whole supply chain, the reverse supply chain is set up, you, you would suggest that that actually becomes a raw material for building the new product.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So we make or, nationwide about 15 to 20% of our material is recycled content um, on the West Coast. Um, it's much heavier just by virtue of, in California, we have the bottle bill, which require, which charges consumers to recycle their containers, and Oregon also has a similar bill, and Oregon actually has very high recycling rates. Over 90% of households actually recycle product up in Oregon, and so that creates a very nice circular loop for us to use actual bottles back in new bottles, and so... So
1: you're saying that Oregon has a higher rate of recycling than California?
2: Absolutely, Yeah.
1: I would have lost my money on the Jeopardy if that question had come up. Uh, that, that's, a, that's pretty interesting to know that. So I know we're going to get into the finance, but let's talk about micro-macro trend of supply chain post-COVID. Uh, I, you, I just briefly discussed outside, but just for the putting audience uh, with some level of pulse check, what do you see from your vantage point about what's happening in the world of supply chain and where are we going?
2: You know, I think it's been interesting really post-COVID and really during COVID, right? We're three years, just over three years. And I would argue there are certain elements of the supply chain that really haven't gotten out of COVID yet, right? We still have, Europe is still struggling to get product. You know, you can attribute that to COVID, the Eastern Europe situation with Russia and Ukraine. And so how you think about your supply chain has extended not just you're my supplier, who's behind you and who's behind them and watching what's happening more broadly and really looking at do you need to diversify and have more than one supplier or do you just need to go deeper into your own supply chain further back up the food stream? Because we're still experiencing substantial delays to get capital in as compared to we were before COVID. And so, you know, understanding what's happening in the supply chain is still super critical. Domestically, things have quieted down in the freight market, but that doesn't mean everywhere else in the supply chain is loosened up.
1: So we're still feeling there's some aftershocks and continue to feel that. And I think you bring up a good point. This is why the theme of our conference that we yesterday and today we're talking about is the reprogramming of the DNA, right? And I think my hypothesis is that the leadership today, which has been classically trained over the last 30, 40 years, we have been very singularly focused on the productivity, productivity of driving efficiency, right? And we haven't had to deal with the agility and the resiliency and, of course, the sustainability, right? And now we're realizing that we're on an inflection point in all of these areas, all at the same time, Do you see your interactions with the leadership, your suppliers? Do you think the thinking has evolved? Do you think we are ready to reprogram the DNA?
2: I think every organization is a little bit different, right? I mean, how they felt COVID and dealt with what happened to the global disruptions, you know, were they very singular uh, focused or were they more macro focused? And I think, you know, just the nature of certain organizations, right, large corporate organizations that are priv- publicly traded have a lot more, you know, bureaucracy in them and agility is a challenging word to get through there and so changing the minds of everyone on the value of long-term change and thinking is different in a smaller privately held organization and so I think it really is a depends on who you are and where you kind of fell and how long you felt the disruption from a financial perspective and just ability to do what you need to do every day, right? There's implications on all sides.
1: Well well said. And I think often I get these narratives because I've written substantially about the decouplings of supply chain. And I think when I first wrote this white paper back in 2014, some of the people made a comment that I was smoking something. And of course, I was not smoking and neither had a perspective about the COVID, yeah, my whole idea was that for four decades we have become so sort of an addicted to low-cost single-node supply chain, right? In which, in this case, China became the world's manufacturing hub. So, and I had just visited some of the data uh, nodes uh, on the Belt and Road initiatives, and I just sort of had this uh, foresight to see that one minor glitch or one major catastrophic event where to succumb upon this one large node, a mega node that now in this case was China, that we could have a devastating impact. Obviously, I did not know about the COVID at that point, but this is back in 2014. And I think even today's conversation in one of the panel, uh, the one of the panelists mentioned that he read, and they don't like the word decoupling, but obviously de-risking. So the view of this. Supply chain being not agile, resilient, right? The question always comes back to the finance, which is your world. Because they say, well, Nick, it's brilliant. You write these things, but you know the cost will go up. Right? So I have an answer to that, but I would love to hear from you from the finance perspective. Is agility and resiliency and sustainability should be built into the equation of product and the cost of goods sold that we can deliver maybe slightly higher cost, but a solution that is good for the people, good for the profit and good for the planet.
2: I think people are changing. Our consumers are changing, right? I mean, they talk about really Gen Z and beyond are really more focused on that sustainability and better for everyone, not just better for corporate pocketbooks. And so, you know, really looking at they'll pay a higher price, but a reasonably higher price, right? And costs have gone up during COVID because of a lot of that decoupling, right? When you go, when you fracture your supply chain, things get more expensive. And so, you know, I think that's, you know, hopefully for the better of long term, but it's been, hasn't been cheap. We've all felt the inflationary impacts, but that some of that's attributable to other factors. But I definitely think consumer mindset's have shifted a lot post-COVID, and so companies are understanding that and realizing people want to have a future for next generations that's happy and livable.
1: Right, and then you are an amazing key stakeholder because often I speak with supply chain guys, which are not that they detach from the finance, but they much rather talk about the operations and the digital transformation, and then the dollars and cents is a third or the fourth layer that they'll touch on it. But obviously, for you, it's the highest priority. Do you think the corporations are willing to understand that, yes, the slight higher cost is well justified because, A, you talked about Gen Z and beyond. They were willing to accept it. So baby boomers, we can't seem to get away from our good old mindset. But if they're ready, why not adapt and be much more open about it, the possibilities?
2: It's just change, right? I mean, everyone's uncomfortable with change, right? And so you're trying to disrupt something that's worked so long so well. And so until there's enough consumer money behind the movement that is disrupting legacy players. I think it's going to take some time. But government regulation and oversight is also driving change, right? There's a lot of legislation. You talked about USC doesn't allow plastic on campus. They're just one of many different things that are activating and requiring corporate compliance on the ESG space, you know, and so it's that balance of do you do it before you get regulated into it or do you try just wait for regulation? And I think interacting with other, you know, organizations, both public and privately traded, everybody falls somewhere on the spectrum, right? I mean, Niagara's been lightweighting for 15 years. There wasn't a government regulation that said you had to, eat, California is requiring less plastic, less product, less quantity, you know, all these things. And Niagara's been doing it for a long time. And so everyone just falls somewhere else. And so there's a cost associated with it. We spend money on innovation and things like that, but it's better for a lot of reasons. No,
1: absolutely. And I think for, for the audience purposes, one of the use cases that I often use, which is, you know, if you think about Starbucks, right? And I remember very first time, and this was right out of my first year of college, I'd actually gone and got the Starbucks latte, right? And I came home in my... My dad actually saw me with a cup, and I said, what is that? And he goes, I said, I said, it's a latte. He goes, really, how much did it cost? And I think back then, actually, it was only $2.85 or $3, right? And he almost fell out of his chair. He goes, a cup of coffee would cost $0.25 or $0.50. So he goes, how do you pay this much money? And I said, well, you don't understand. The beans are traceable. The farmers are rewarded with the fair wages for the crop, and right, I mean, at that time it was a paradigm break, not just a shift, yeah. about a company creating a mission to do something right in all of those areas. This is before we defined the ESG yeah. and corporate social responsibility. I think so. The point I'm trying to make: the finance can work if we have a right message, and we actually, especially now, the Gen Zs and beyond that they're willing to accept this as a sort of a lifestyle choices, that we are on inflection, we're on a burning platform, we need to do something different, I would propose that the numbers can work. Yep. Well, what are your thoughts?
2: I think they do work, right? I mean, you see companies that they do work, you know, they just take time to mature and develop. Starbucks didn't become what it is overnight, right? I mean, now it's, you can't walk 10 feet and not find a Starbucks, right, particularly in the U.S., but... You know, I think doing the right thing is starting to create a lot of value from an employee, hiring and retention, getting smart people on the boat. You know, so I think there's a lot of value to corporations, not just at point of sale, but also just getting good people to come work for the organization and help promote the organization. And, you know, getting the right people to come work for you also drives profitability. And so it's that collaboration of consumer and your workforce.
1: Fantastic. So what are the key things you're seeing in your organization. Now, you mentioned that you have about 50 five, zero plants across the U.S. So when you say that, I'm, I'm supposing that you have international capacity as well. Am I correct in assuming that?
2: Yeah, we have a few manufacturing facilities outside the U.S., but they're local. They don't bring product back to the U.S. Everything we make stays local to GEO.
1: Okay, and which, if you don't mind, which locations are those?
2: Sure, we have um, two manufacturing plants in Mexico, and then we have uh, four plants in Australia and one plant in the UK.
1: Fantastic. So now those plants obviously serve the local market. Yes. Now, so let's talk about, because obviously part of the decoupling argument, going back and tying to your structure here, is that one would say that out of all of those locations that you have, if you were to move everything to the cheapest source, and ship everything to everywhere. That should be the model that, obviously, we've practiced for the last 30, 40 years. But it looks like that you guys started reverse. You went into the consumer demand and established your manufacturing close to the customer. So walk me through, if you may, how does that work? And obviously, that's a slightly higher cost than going from the cheapest manufacturing place where we could have actually set up all your operations. So just walk me through the rationale.
2: Sure. I mean, I think every product's different, right? I mean, a truck can only carry so much weight. And for us, all beverages are heavy, right? Liquid is heavy. And so for us, freight is one of our biggest costs. And so close to customer and close to consumer is very important. And so we use you know, population density information to decide where to put our foot to help from the sustainability environmental perspective, but also to help keep costs down for consumers. And so as you fill in nodes, that's really why you do it. For other companies, freight may not be a, a driver in considering how you allocate or think about where you set up, but for us, it's one of our top considerations of where we set up because of the cost to move our product.
1: So so let me just for the clarity for the audience. Give me a couple of examples of your product that you bottle and you sh- send it to your customer.
2: Sure. So if you go into Costco and you buy Kirkland water, we make Kirkland water. So right, and
1: I have had plenty of those bottles. Yeah. Okay. So, so no.
2: yeah, so Kirkland, we make it for Sam's Club, for Walmart. We actually make some product for branded customers as well, and so you know it's. Almost any water bottle you'll drink and kind of that small traditional half liter bottle, we make about 80% of what is sold in the U.S.
0: Stay tuned for more discussions and fascinating insights on this topic only at Supply Chain Demystified. We hope you enjoyed another exciting episode of Supply Chain Demystified. Stay tuned for the next demystifying discussion on the supply chain. Visit uscsupplychain.com to stay up to date on all things supply chain.